Hello there, I'm Justin, and welcome to today's episode of The Pickup Line. Uh, it's Friday, and today we are going to be continuing our journey into Walter Ong's orality and literacy. Um, we're going to be focusing on a sort of a smaller section this time, taking it very uh, little steps at a time. Um, and this section is actually pretty cool. There's a lot of interesting stuff in here, so thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get into it. So today we find ourselves around approximately page 92 of Walter Ong's Orality and Literacy, and we're in a really interesting section here where Ong is tracing the history of the onset of literacy and the way that the actual physical practices of composing and writing em emerged and evolved over time. Uh, Ang begins here by saying, when a fully formed script of any sort, alphabetic or other, first makes its way from outside into a particular society, it does so necessarily at first in restricted sectors and with varying effects and implications. Writing is often regarded at first as an instrument of secret and magic power. Um, Ong cites uh, Goody, 1968 here. Uh, there's a lot of citations. He, he draws heavily upon this text by Goody from 1968, so just a heads up there. Um, Ong continues and says, traces of this early attitude toward writing can still show etymologically. The Middle English's grammary or grammar, referring to book learning, came to mean occult or magical lore, and through one Scottish dialectical form has emerged in our present English vocabulary as glamour, which means spell-casting power. That's very interesting, you know, that caught my eye because uh, I play a lot of video games, and um, one of the video games that I play has a, a system by which you can uh, make your character look uh, different than the, than the clothes or armor that your character is wearing. You can... Um, cast a glamour on yourself and make your clothes magically look like any other clothes. And so this word glamour, um, we see this a lot. Um, it's all over the place in, in mysticism and, and uh, you know, uh, sci-fi fantasy stuff. It's everywhere. Uh, uh, Ong says, glamour girls are really grammar girls. The Futhark, or runic alphabet, of medieval northern Europe was commonly associated with magic. Another interesting video game connection there. Uh, Final Fantasy XI, the game I've talked about a lot on this podcast, has a very um, deep tradition of uh, historical and mythological nomenclature systems. Uh, everything in that game is named after something from some culture's historical uh, 
backstory, um, whether it be Norse mythology or whatever. And one of the gear sets in Final Fantasy XI um, for rune, a, a character class called Rune Fencer is called a Futhark set of gear. Uh, so the Futhark coat. And that, and that job uses mystical runic uh, magics to, to cast spells and things. And so it's interesting here to see that. I never knew that the word Futhark uh, was a Northern European uh, magical uh, runic alphabet. On continues, scraps of writing are used as magic amulets, but they also can be valued simply because of the wonderful permanence they confer on words. The Nigerian novelist Chinue Akibe describes how in an Igbo village, the one man who knew how to read uh, hoarded in his house every bit of printed material that came his way. Newspapers, cartoons, receipts, it all seemed too remarkable to throw away. Uh, so on continues here, kind of tracing uh, the evolution and sort of the uh, almost... Uh, almost uh, uh, religious reverence that that when when writing first came into being when it first started to shift away from morality when we first developed the tools and the materials needed to create physical texts how that almost became a a, a very mystical or powerful or um, religious thing um, uh, being able to to have these physical objects uh, felt like they were powerful because they were uh, imbued with words and so I think that's very interesting um, Ang continues here, and he says, uh, Long-standing oral mental habits of thinking through one's thoughts allowed, encouraged dictation, but so did the state of writing technology. In the physical act of writing, the medieval Englishman Roderick Vitalis says, The whole body labors. Through the Middle Ages in Europe, authors often employed scribes. Composition in writing, working out one's thoughts pen in hand, particularly in briefer compositions, was of course practiced to some extent from antiquity, but it became widespread for literary and other prolonged composition at different times in different cultures. It was still rare in 11th century England, and when it occurred, even this late, could be done in a psychological setting so oral that we find it hard to imagine. The 11th century Aidmar of St. Albanes says that when he composed in writing, he felt he was dictating to himself. St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote his own manuscripts, organizes the Summa Theologiae in quasi-oral format. Each section or question begins with a recitation of objections against the position Thomas will take, then Thomas states his position, and finally answers the objections in order. Similarly, an early poet would write down a poem by imagining himself declaiming it to an audience. Few, if any, novelists today write a novel by imagining themselves declaiming it aloud, though they might be exquisitely aware of the sound effects of the words. High literacy fosters truly written composition, in which the author composes a text which is precisely a text, puts his or her words together on paper. This gives thought different contours from those of orally sustained thought. More will be said that is written here later about the effects of literacy on thought processes. I think this is so interesting. Um, you know, as a, as a compositionist, as a teacher of rhetoric and writing, I am always talking to my students and, and myself about audience and about how audience reacts to texts. And um, this idea of thinking about when we compose, you know, uh, we always talk about this idea of audience in the, in the back of our mind. Like we have this audience in mind, we're writing to someone, we're writing for someone, we're writing to serve a purpose. Um, and everything that we put into that text, whether it be visual compositions or multimodal components, they all, they all appease some element of what we're trying to, to achieve with our audiences. Um, and so this notion here that, you know, uh, this idea of composing writing in a different way than we would compose orality like 
not imagining ourselves shouting this thing that we are writing to someone, to an audience, verbally, physically, in front of them, like a speech. Um, you know, that's a fundamental shift. Um, and it's much more internalized. Uh, you know, we have that audience in our, in our brain imagined instead of out in front of us to see, to, to hear, to feel, to be heckled by, um, to be annoyed by, to be interrupted by. Um, so it really, it really does, the evolution of writing and, and, and the advent of it really does change how we process our thoughts and how we think about organizing those thoughts. Uh, moving into the next section here, it's entitled From Memory to Written Records. On continues to trace sort of the idea of historical memory and orality and how that changed um, when, we, when we began to you know, compose in, in physical texts. Um, he cites a lot of work here by a researcher named Clancy, um, and Ong writes, In the period he studies, uh, Clancy finds that documents did not immediately inspire trust. People had to be persuaded that writing improved the old oral methods sufficiently to warrant all the expense and troublesome techniques it involved. Before the use of documents, collective oral testimony was commonly used to establish, for example, the age of feudal heirs. To settle a dispute in... 1127 as to whether the customs dues at the port of Sandwich went to St. Augustine's Abbey at Canterbury or to Christ Church, a jury was chosen consisting of 12 men from Dover and 12 from Sandwich, quote, mature, wise seniors of many years having good testimony. Each juror then swore that, as I have received from my ancestors and I have seen and heard from my youth, the tolls belong to Christ Church, for example. They were publicly remembering what others before them had remembered. Um, it's an interesting idea here. This 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 notion of memory warrants truth and experience and being an elder and having a historical memory imbues you with a sense of justified truth is really interesting here. And this notion of having to convince people that writing methods were um, perhaps more truthful than oral methods um, reminds me a lot of some of the struggles that I've had trying to convince folks that there is there is benefit to newer writing tools and technologies. Um, I've you know I've I've sort of made that argument throughout my career uh, as a writing teacher, uh, sort of championing the use of technology and various tools and software and devices um, throughout my career, and it, it, that's a similar thing. I think we're seeing a similar transition, and this is just me theorizing now, but I think we're seeing a a similar thing happening here where we have an established historical order, just as one example, higher education, which values certain things and always has historically. And here we have a new generation of folks coming in with new tools and new skill sets, um, new ways of thinking about composing, new ways of thinking about communication and orality and literacy and all of these things, and in a way kind of challenging that established historical hierarchy that we see often in higher ed. Um, so I, I've always tried to buck that that system myself, you know, working from within. But um, I think that's an interesting parallel to be made there for sure. Um, you know, moving from orality to literacy and now moving from literacy to kind of techno literacy, um, thinking about how we, you know, students are moving away from the paradigms of the five paragraph essay and the formal academic paper and they're moving into more of these socially constructed paradigms through the use of their technology. Um, I've, I see students that are unbelievable composers of social media um, compositions, of video, of audio, of the work that they're doing of their own accord on their own platforms, Twitch and Discord and all of these places where people are quote, quote writing and composing, 
um, none of those systems are really valued by a higher educational system because that higher educational system is rooted in a more historically, um, you know, uh, quote, the idea of a more historically literate society, a society that values the writing of a text in one particular way. Um, anyway, I digress. Uh, on continues um, here in this section with some really interesting stuff. Um, he says here that, quote, the verifiable errors resulting from the still radically oral economic and uh, juridical procedures that Clanchy reports were minimal because the fuller past was mostly inaccessible to consciousness. Uh, remembered truth was flexible and up to date. As has been seen in instances from uh, modern Nigeria and Ghana, in an oral economy of thought, matters from the past without any sort of present relevance commonly dropped into oblivion. Customary law, trimmed of material no longer of use, was automatically always up to date and thus youthful, a fact which, paradoxically, makes customary law seem inevitable and thus very old. Persons whose worldview has been formed by high literacy need to remind themselves that in functionally oral cultures, the past is not felt as an, in, as an itemized terrain, peppered with verifiable and disputed facts or bits of information. It is the domain of the ancestors, a resonant source for reviewing awareness of present existence, which itself is not an itemized terrain either. Orality knows no lists or charts or figures. Um, Ong continues here and, 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 and uh, evokes Goody and says, Goody has examined the detail, in, in detail, the noetic significance of tables and lists, of which the calendar is one example. Writing makes such apparatus possible. Indeed, writing was, in a sense, invented largely to make something like lists. By far, most of the earliest writing we know, that in the cuneiform script of the Sumerians beginning around 3500 BC, is account keeping. Primary oral cultures commonly situate their equivalent of lists in narrative as in the catalog of the ships and captains in the Iliad. Not an objective tally, but an operational display in a story about war. He goes on to trace more examples of this listing of things, and we see this a lot. And from my own experience growing up as a Catholic um, and reading the, you know, hearing the Bible a lot, um, right now I don't really have much of a religious affiliation, but growing up Catholic, um, there was this thing in the Bible about like so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and there was all these sort of lists of things and the reason that folks did that was because that comes from an oral culture where it was easier to remember those mnemonic devices um, this notion of the, the, the subject predicate object producing this grammatical swing back and forth that was easier to remember and that found its way into the written culture um, the next section of this part of Ong's ideas is really interesting to me um, because I've often, uh, and I'll make a few connections here as I, as I just kind of talk about this, but um, we, talk about, we talk about text, we talk about writing on paper in terms of, of, the, of the human body. So think, think about, think about your, your Word document or your Google document and think about some of the, the nomenclature involved in the creation of text there. Um, words like header, footnote, the body paragraphs, or the body of the text, right? We have 
we have we have sort of transferred our sense of physical body into our physical text. And An kind of touches on that here. Um, and when he says, lists of the sort Goody discusses are of course useful if we are reflectively aware of the distortion they inevitably introduce. Visual presentation of verbalized material in space has its own particular economy, its own laws of motion and structure. Texts in various scripts around the world are read variously from right to left or left to right or top to bottom or all these ways at once, as in Boistrophedon writing, but never anywhere, so far as it is known, from bottom to top. Texts assimilate utterance to the human body. They introduce a feeling for, quote, headings in accumulations of knowledge. Chapter derives from the Latin caput, meaning head, as of the human body. Pages have not only heads, but also feet for footnotes. References are given to what is above and below in a text when what is meant is several pages back or farther on. The significance of the vertical and the horizontal in texts deserves serious study. Um, Kirchhoff suggests that growth in left hemisphere dominance governed the drift in early Greek writing from right to left movement. Uh, to boistrophedon movement, which means ox plowing, the pattern of one line going right, then a turn around a corner into the next line going left, the letters inverted according to the direction of the line, to Stoichian style, which is vertical lines, and finally to a definitive left-to-right movement on a horizontal line. All this is quite a different world of order from anything in the oral sensibility, which has no way of operating with headings or verbal liter linearity. Across the world, the alphabet. I love this. This is great. This is this is uh, this is where so so much of this book is like Ong Ong like quoting other people and kind of tracing histories. But I love when Ong kind of pops in with his own voice here, and and it, it, these these moments are becoming more and more apparent to me. But right here, Ong pops in and he says this great thing. He says. Across the world, the alphabet, the ruthlessly efficient reducer of sound to space, is pressed into direct service for setting up the new space-defined sequences. Items are marked A, B, C, and so on to indicate their sequences. And even poems in the early days of literacy are composed with the first letter of the first word of successive lines following the order of the alphabet. The alphabet as a simple sequence of letters is a major bridge between, old, uh, between oral mnemonic and literate mnemonics. Generally, the sequence of the letters of the alphabet is memorized orally and then used for largely visual retrieval of materials as in indexes. So I think this, 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 that's just an interesting idea here, right? Um, this idea that we've, we've used the alphabet to physicalize, it's not really a word, but to sort of physicalize sound, and then we've encapsulated that physiology of sound into this, this thing that is very much like our, our actual bodies. Um, and I think that's very true. And another parallel, another connection maybe I'll draw here or a parallel that I'll, that I'll try to make is this idea that I've often found it really interesting that, I say this all the time, when we moved from, you know, if we're talking about moving from orality to literacy and the ways that literate, literate cultures and, and, and literate texts, physical texts, have kind of taken on vestiges of orality, um, then perhaps we should also think about this idea that um, when we've moved from physical texts into electronic text, we've done that same sort of move. We've we've taken vestiges of the electron of the physical, and we've kind of carried that over into the electronic. Why, for example, does a Microsoft Word document or a Google Drive document look 
on a digital computer screen the same way that a physical piece of paper does? I've often found that to be an interesting question. Why is it that our digital texts mimic and mirror the way that our physical texts look, feel, and function? Um, because we're not interacting with those texts the same way. Uh, we're not. Um, it, I, I suppose it's an evolution of the way that the typewriter worked. Um, putting a physical piece of paper into a typewriter and then watching the letters appear on the page while you press the key, that's kind of where the evolution occurs. But it would be interesting, I think, to see how that might be different in an electronic text. Like, does it have to look like the print text or is there a different way to think about it? Now, perhaps computer code is that. Um, I'm not a coder. I know I dabble on that just a bit, but that certainly looks looks not like a piece of paper. Um, and you're doing things in a computer code that would not make sense on a piece of paper were you to print it out. Um, so I think there's something interesting there. But I've always I've always wondered about that. Like, what what could have happened? What could we have done instead of mimicking our physical piece of paper in an electronic space? What could we have done differently to make that be more uh, in, be more intrinsically digital. I don't know. It's just something to think about. But I think we're getting to that here um, as, as we see the, 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 on kind of tracing this idea of the, the physical body and how that re translated into the, the, the literate text. And then, you know, maybe we need to think about the idea of the digital body. You know, how do, how do, we, how do we define our bodies in digital spaces um, as, we, as we mostly navigate with, with floating heads on video screens and disembodied voices and all these digital elements of ourselves. Perhaps there's something there to think about. But I thought this was an interesting section for sure. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Feel free to leave a message for the podcast. Um, we'll do more uh, orality and literacy maybe next Friday. Um, I really appreciate you hanging in there and tuning in. This book is really interesting and I'm really enjoying reading it considering the, the work that I do in my career. And I really appreciate you going on this journey with me. So thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend and I will see you all on the pickup line next week. Cheers.